Welcome to another episode of the History of California podcast. Uh, this is the second episode in a couple weeks now. I'm trying to increase my level of output uh, based on the feedback that many of you have given me that you'd like uh, these episodes to continue and uh, become more frequent. So I'm going to continue to try and push more out. Uh, this is the last episode on Junipero Serra. Uh, we're going to leave him and move on to other parts of the Spanish period of California history. And I'm sad to see him go. I've enjoyed my time with Junipero, but it's just time to move on. So enjoy this final episode on Junipero Serra. As this is the last week we'll be spending with Junipero Serra, it's usually about this time that we begin to make value assessments of him and his contributions. Many historians do not like to dip into the world of value judgments. There's a few different reasons why this is a non-typical approach. Often, people value, view value judgments when looking at history as anachronistic. Um, you can't judge people of a previous world by the standards of our time. You have to treat them as people within a world that is wholly different and apart from ours. Another reason is that uh, historians want an air of objectivity. Casual value judgments are for popular history, stuff for pedestrian readers. For many reasons, we hope that our historians are operating in a place of objectivity. But the truth is, is that's impossible. We can see the objectivity disappear when we look at how stories are constructed and told, who the narrator is, where the story begins, where the story ends, where you choose to begin and end matters, and how you tell and whose perspective you tell it from matters. Now, on the other side, there are some historians like Howard Zinn, for example, um, who don't mind taking a subjective approach and in turn have become prophets of oppression telling the story from a particular political point of view or sociological point of view, or they take the other uh, approach, which is the kind of uh, hero heroic man approach that writers like Paul Johnson use, where they tell stories of great, powerful men, typically white, um, that do heroic things. And th these stories tend to gloss over the more dark sides of these famous people. They think objectivity is passe. Let's just tell people what to think, kind of like the self-helpy book section at the library. For my part, in order to be intellectually honest, readers of history, you need to do both. You should judge them according to their standards, but you should also judge them according to yours. For example, let's think about a slave owner in the South who freed slaves that were dependable and hardworking after a certain number of years. Within the world of the antebellum South, he might have been viewed as a progressive and even a dangerous radical by some. Now, obviously, according to our standards, I think we can safely say that he's not someone we want to have a statue made for. There's a tension there. Do we need to resolve that tension? Is it our place to do that? Can't we just talk about these two points of view in turn? Yes, I think we can. 
Now, when it comes to Sarah, I think we can say that relative to the way the military and the civilian, the settlers, looked at Native people, Sarah was both kind and radical in his respect to the people he met in California. At the same time, Sarah ushered in and aided settlements and ultimately the removal of the Native people from this land. So when I read the article about Sarah, uh, about Sarah Street on Stanford's campus being renamed, I ultimately had no qualms. Sarah may have been an important person. He may have had a superior ethical code to the military leaders that surrounded him and did not like the idea of expanding the settlements and pushing Native people out. But when we make a statue and build a monument or name a street after someone, we're proclaiming that this person represents our values. We are glorifying this person. We are saying that this person is someone who should remind us uh, to live an ethical life. This is someone we want to memorialize. There's obviously a political dimension to this, which is in part why we have a bunch of Martin Luther King boulevards and not a bunch of Malcolm X ways, but we don't need to go there now. This is our world, and we get to choose who our heroes are. Now, obviously, there's a slippy, slippery slope element to all of this. If we take down any statue, any monument, any street name where that person had ethical inconsistencies, uh, there may not be any left. But I do believe we should be able to do it, and it is reasonable given the role that these memorials play in our world. All right. Now, I know that was a long introduction, but I just wanted to start there. Um, because today is a pretty simple day. It's a pretty simple podcast. Because we're going to talk about the end of Sarah's life. So I think it has a lot to say uh, to us. And uh, the way he viewed pain and suffering and death are so different that it's uh, interesting to spend a moment here in this final podcast on Sarah. Now... Um, Returning back to our main character, Junipero Serra, he had quite an adventurous life, traveling from his world to a place no one had ever visited before, creating missions and projects along the coast of a foreign land. That would be an adventurous life for anybody. But Junipero Serra did not have the body to match it. He was often referred to as small or undersized as a child. As a boy in church, he could not read scripture off of the altar and effectively needed a boost to see it. As he got older, he grew taller, but would always remain frail and weak. Now, the combination of frailty with the traveling stress, the stress of his political life, and the pressure of beginning mission projects all likely contributed to his decline. Three years before Sarah would give in to his illness, he began to decline dramatically. Yet he still continued the duties required of his position as the president of the mission project in California. The combination of a crippled leg and a chest injury, which some say was self-inflicted, uh, likely contributed to his decline. Now, the, in regards to the chest injury, during his sermons... It was written by multiple sources that he would regularly smash a stone into his chest to deliver a strong point or message. There's a motif in Christian history of the martyr or the wounded healer. The idea 
is to become like Christ, which is what the word Christian means, um, one needs to experience pain and suffering like Jesus did. Uh, One of my favorite moments from the famous movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, is when a group of monks are marching through the streets during the Black Plague, uh, chanting prayers for the victims of the plague, all the while smashing their heads with blocks of wood. Uh, This is a not-so-subtle reference to a movement within Christianity called flagentalism. Uh, It's a 14th-century movement that um, essentially sought, people sought to wound themselves as a way to petition to God uh, to avoid getting the plague or removing it from their bodies. I'm no doctor, but creating open wounds on your body when there's a contagious plague running through town makes the historical movement uh, seem a bit ironic, uh, but people believe this. Now, this is kind of an extreme version, but there's a much more concrete, normal version uh, that is much more of a broader theme which in Christianity, which is the history of martyrs. Um, Christianity, for most of its existence, has had an obsession with those who suffered for Christ. Uh, Last summer, I was in Tunis, uh, which is in Tunisia, North Africa, um, where I visited the ruins of the ancient city of Carthage. While we were there, our tour guide took us to an amphitheater where St. Perpetua, a very famous saint in the Christian religion, uh, refused to recant publicly after her father and then local officials encouraged her to do so. The story our guide told us about her end was very gruesome, Um, But for him, he was a Christian, and many others, the story is a tale of someone who gave her life heroically for the most important cause. And those wounds would, in fact, bring her so much more glory in the eyes of God. Now, given this legacy of glorifying the affliction of pain and suffering for religious reasons, we can see and understand Sarah's worldview and why he refused medical treatment even though he was in a severe decline. Now, the second interesting thing about Sarah's decline was that he was quite comfortable with the idea of death, um, and he would continue his rituals and his devotion until the end. Um, in the last day and a half of his life, he made his final general confession of his sins to his lifelong and f- friend and fellow priest, Palu. And then the last night of his life, he kneeled at the altar in spite of his extreme pain and said his final prayer. He didn't sleep much during the last night. How could you, I suppose? The next day, he had some friends uh, who had realized that Sarah had just a short time left who stopped by to visit him one last time. Now, in the final moments of one's life, uh, one can be understandably self-absorbed. This is uh, the most dramatic moment that we will all experience. And if Sarah had been focused on his self and his soul or whatever he was thinking about and considering afterlife and those kinds of things, um, it would have been totally reasonable. But instead, uh, he was focused on honoring his guests. He had the church ring the bells, and he spent most of their short time together asking about these two people's travels in Peru, which is where they'd come from. Um, He was very outward-facing, and this is what we've seen from Sarah all along, that uh, Sarah um, 
is someone who at least seems from the record to care legitimately about others. In his final moments, Sarah did have a moment of fear overcome him, and he called to his friend Palu and had him read the following text. Uh, in the name of angels and archangels, in the name of powers and principalities, in the name of the cherubim and the seraphim, in the name of the holy martyrs and confessors, in the name of the holy monks and hermits, this long ongoing prayer. After Palu finished, Sarah told him that I shall now rest, and he died soon after. The bells were rung announcing his passing, and it said that native people, priests, soldiers, and everyone who knew him came to the hut where he died um, and began publicly mourning. His body was put on display and buried in a modest grave, which in a sense represents who he was. Now, as a final note, it is interesting that we're doing this podcast about Sarah's death now, um, because California just lost another important figure uh, just this last month, Kobe Bryant. Um, Our culture in the United States is not typically good at the idea or proficient at public mourning, Uh, but his death was so shocking and so traumatic that many people uh, have forgone their typical reservations and inhibitions with mourning in public and have done it in a very vulnerable way in front of others. Um, From tattoos to murals, each person who loves basketball has found their own way to mark this historic moment. I will be honest, uh, as a native Southern Californian, uh, his death was not easy for me. Going to Instagram in the weeks following that horrible Sunday morning were difficult, from the videos of celebrities telling their Kobe Bryant stories to pictures of him and his daughter playing basketball. It was nearly torture half the time. Now, during his life, Kobe certainly was not always a positive person. He had his shortcomings, his moments of weakness, and possible criminal acts, to be honest. Uh, But on the whole, he contributed a lot to the community of Los Angeles. And there will be a time in the next few years, as the emotional gravity has relaxed, where we will get to decide and measure his life and career. But my question is, against what? When you're talking about someone's legacy, how is it to be properly measured? Can one person properly measure another's life? This, I think, is why many historians prefer to stick to the facts. Measuring someone's life and ascribing a thumbs-up or thumbs-down conclusion reduces the complexity of their lives. To end, then, this is the point where you get to decide what measuring stick you will use. Every person has one, and this is how we choose who are, who are our heroes, and who are our villains. And at this point in the story, I will leave it to you to choose your measurement instrument. Next time, we are moving to talk on about the Anza Expedition, another important part of early Californian history. Very excited. This will be a short episode uh, before we move on to a broader program about the mission system. We'll also get into the ranchos in the next couple weeks, another important part of the Spanish period of California history. I'm very excited to continue this podcast with you. Thank you for all the people who have been supporting us. Uh, It really means a lot, both financially to support this podcast, but also just uh, on an emotional level, knowing that this uh, podcast is uh, having an impact. Another way you can help if uh, you can't afford to help financially is to help by leaving a review. 
the more reviews they have, the more people are likely to click the play button and listen for themselves. So if you haven't already left a review, uh, please do. It really, really helps. Have a wonderful week. Until next time.